crypto regulation shape the future of traditional financial services? Welcome to Global Risk Regulators podcast series about banking and financial regulation. For more about GRR, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. This episode delves into international developments surrounding the regulation of crypto assets and what this is likely to mean for mainstream financial services. It will be a whirlwind tour encompassing the EU's market and crypto assets regulation, what the UK is likely to do in this space, and a glimpse at the currently confusing US situation. It also comments on the consultation by the Basel Committee on bank exposures to crypto assets. Global Risk Regulator has covered crypto regulation and central bank digital currencies extensively. If you're not a subscriber and would like to take a free trial, please contact my colleague Ella Jacob at ella.jacob at ft.com. To share insights into these regulatory developments, I am delighted to welcome Yves Lanchamp, Head of Research at Ciba Bank, a Swiss bank providing a bridge between traditional and digital assets. I'm also very pleased to welcome Lavan Thassana Tharkumar, the Regulatory Affairs Director EMIR at Global Digital Finance, an association advocating for digital assets. There is a general consensus that decentralized finance or DeFi will not replace traditional financial services and firms. However, most believe it will have a profound impact on those firms. Levan, can you give some thoughts on how DeFi might change the industry? Well, I think this is actually something that is very similar to the discussion that we had when there was the the rise of fintechs. There was a whole question on who is going to prevail here. Will it be the fintechs or will it be the incumbent banks? And as we're seeing now, the, the answer was not that one will displace the other, but in fact, there is a convergence. We'll, we'll see that uh, incumbent financial institutions are transitioning from their legacy systems or partnering with fintechs or you know, yeah. the, the two coexist. And, and I think that's something that's very similar in the DeFi industry and, and what we're seeing here. The, what the similarity is that what in the same way of what fintechs offered, what DeFi is offering is the provision of faster, better, cheaper, and more efficient financial services. And I think that's what we're going to see is that traditional financial services companies will start adopting some DeFi protocols, as we're already starting to see, um, as the kind of businesses and the world of finance start move on to this next plane. Yeah, no, I, I must admit, I do like the fintech analogy very much. That's, that's a very good one. And and Eve, I mean, what is your view on how DeFi might shape mainstream financial services? Because I mean, you're kind of quite involved in that yourself. Yes, indeed. Thank you uh, for the question. I think the way I see it is more like there will be a sort of complements between these kind of new decentralized finance and traditional finance. Uh, in my view, what happened with DeFi, it's a kind of commoditization of finance. So you can do simple stuff. I mean, for the time being, lending, borrowing, you know, all the exchange of assets, it, it proved to work what we have seen in the last uh, 12 months. Yeah. And as Lavan mentioned, obviously you have huge advantage because it's it's fast, it's uh, cheap, 
and the rules are clear. You see the code, the code is low, and there's also a kind of settlement system which is included, so it's T plus zero. It's really it's, uh, instantaneous. So I think that there will be a sort of merge. But I think that, you know, on the one hand, I think that uh, banking or let's say traditional financial system will benefit from DeFi, especially when we think about these simple uh, solutions. Yeah. But for more complex financial transactions, I think that we still have time and we still need to have a traditional finance. And on the other hand, I think that uh, DeFi to, let's say, to go to the next step, we need to uh, have uh, institutional investors that can literally open the door to, our, to other institutions, meaning that uh, institutional investors that do the KYC, AML, all this kind of usual checking to kind of whitelist uh, participants, and then you literally open a DeFi to a new space. And I think that as long as we don't have digital identity, banks have also their benefits. So I imagine that both of them will work together. Yeah, no, that, that, all, yes, no, it's all, all, all very good points. Um, if, if, if I can stay with you, um, so as we develop this topic a bit more. So, Eve, maybe you could take this one up first. Um, it looks probable that most jurisdictions will introduce um, central bank digital currencies at some point in some form. Um, will that be a game changer for mainstream financial services? given it is a kind of a central bank's answer to cryptocurrencies. I mean, does this does this actually potentially also help traditional financial services against DeFi? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this is a game changer. But I mean, in my view, the, the interest of central banking to use blockchain is manifold. I mean, on the first, uh, just on, on the pure technological level, as, as an infrastructure, central banks has always I've been interested in finding better way to, you know, use infrastructure to yeah. uh, propagate monetary policy, and this is quite clear that uh, uh, blockchain is one of them. The second thing is they do observe that stablecoin are getting more and more important. If you look at the ranking in terms of market capitalization after Bitcoin and Ether, the third biggest capitalization is US Tether, which is a stablecoin which is about $62 billion, so it's quite massive. And yeah. this is outside the reach of the usual monetary policy channel. So you would like also to be able to be closer to that. And I think that to have a CBDC, central bank digital currency, is a way to bridge this new world. And uh, so for, for that point of view, I think that central bank need to uh, go into this direction. And finally, then if we go back to the, to the idea of DeFi, DeFi is finance. And we know that central banks have been trading, first of all, to help finance. Finance yeah. is a very fragile edifice. Remember, we, we all remember global financial crisis, and no one pretends that the DeFi space will be stronger than that. So if it becomes big and uh, attracts a lot of capital, there may be some vulnerabilities. And you would be happy to have some lender plus resort or buyer plus resort because it's likely that, let's say, the frontier of traditional and decentralized finance will become more and more blurred. And then you would be happy to have central banks, let's say 2.0, which have the ability with central bank digital currency to inject directly 24 7 liquidity into the system. So, in yeah. my opinion, CBC is quite good. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm very much welcome uh, that central banks goes into this uh, space as well. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that, that certainly does spell out some some hints at how, how it could be quite radical. I mean, Levan, if I can turn to you, um, I mean, do you think CBDCs might prove the saviours for uh, conventional financial services? Uh, I mean, no doubt it will still have a big impact on them, whatever happens. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I wouldn't use the word saviour as such. I, okay. I'd probably say, I'd say it's more a facilitator for financial services to, to evolve into this next plane that we're referring to. So I think traditional financial services and crypto, the crypto industry will have a role to play in this. And, you know, I think as, as Eve mentioned um, in his previous uh, comment, I think the infrastructure around this is the, the most important thing. And I think that is the biggest benefit that comes out of having CBDC. Well, in this context, uh, the likes of having digital ID, um, digital wallets, these are all vital. Uh, these are all vital components that I think will start to bring people into the ecosystem. That will allow for new products and services to be created on top of this. Um, and I think that's that's the kind of um, exciting thing about this. So it wouldn't necessarily be a, a savior of traditional finance, but. Fair enough. Uh, something that will kind of allow both traditional finance and the crypto industry to move into this uh, into this new plane. Right. Okay, great. Okay, Levan, I know this is uh, an area you've been focusing on a lot. So, you know, let, let's turn to the regulatory challenges now. Uh, now. Now, crypto is a new area based on, you know, decentralization, automation, and it's creating all kinds of new approaches to traditional finan financial activities. Obviously, it's also evolving incredibly rapidly. So, in your view, what are the regulatory challenges in terms of balancing financial stability and consumer protection issues without stifling innovation? And also, is there anything that can be learned from more developed crypto regimes from countries such as Switzerland, Liechtenstein, and Singapore, for example? Yeah, um, so I think it's always a difficult one. And I think you've, you, you've said it there, that whenever something like this happens, the difficulty is really trying to, to, to find that line between ensuring the consumer protection, financial stability and, and um, market integrity aspects, but then also recognizing the importance of promoting this competition and innovation, which in of itself lends a hand to providing those protections as well. Yeah. And I think one of the difficulties that the occurs in this industry is the decentralized aspect of it. Now, our existing regulatory regimes are all very much built on there being a central entity that is held accountable. And the decentralization aspect of this makes it quite complicated. Um, I don't think that, however, from a regulatory uh, uh, perspective, this is insurmountable. Um, I think actually what, what needs to be put in place, and I think what has been done well or, or the kind of trajectory that we're going in is building out clear frameworks on how to regulate this industry. And I think that is something that is very important and something that addresses the activity that is taking place rather than being sidetracked by the technology. So I mean, I mean, a lot of the rhetoric around this is having a tech neutral approach to 
yeah. regulation. And I think that's that's something that we, we've got to um, persist with. To address your point about is there something else that we can learn from other crypto regimes and other and some of the other jurisdictions you talked about, I think the important thing that we need to pick up from this is it's it's not just a framework that we need to create. Um, it's the ecosystem, and what I mean by that is you can have uh, you can have a framework in place, but it needs to have the whole the buy-in from the whole ecosystem to facilitate that uh, to, to facilitate that framework. So you 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 need to the regulators need to know how they are supervising this regime. The industry need to know how to apply the rules, but then. Once that is done, you also need to the, the industry also need to have, for example, access to bank accounts um, and and, yeah. and a clear understanding of their tax liabilities. And these the this ecosystem is what will allow crypto to uh, to prevail and allow us to build a, a kind of framework that is uh, that is more effective. Right. Okay. Well, all, all, all very good points there. Um, Eve, let me turn to you. I mean, you already operate under one of those developed regimes, i.e. the Swiss one. Um, so, you know, so you've got some experience of that. I mean, Switzerland is seeing that very ecosystem developing. Um, so, I mean, what, what is your take on the best way to protect investors of financial stability without hurting crypto innovation? Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree with what Levan said, and uh, I think it's very difficult because the way regulation has been created so far is all about on central authority. So you need to find someone, you need to have an institution. And because this is decentralized, so regulation doesn't exist, and we don't even know how to do it because nothing happens to that. Uh, and this is the difficulty. I mean, the, the difficulty is that there are many different factors in this kind of big ecosystem. You are for the consumers yes. to protect it. So this is kind of normal. You have it everywhere. You are also, if you want to regulate it and to develop it and to develop uh, DeFi or all the, the blockchain application, you need to take institutions with you, which means that you need to pave the way for institutional adoptions uh, so that finance of tomorrow can have can use DeFi within their toolbox and not outside. Because the, 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 I think it would be completely counterproductive if you regulate it in a way so that you create two types of financial system. I think that would be the, the, the worst. I think you also need to uh, take care of monetary authority. We just mentioned it with CBDC. Yeah. It depends a lot on the, the type of country, the monetary authority you have, the capital control. So think about China, for example. And finally, as about innovation, this is, you need to take the new actor into it. This is the cyberpunk community or the developers, or who, I don't know how you, how you want to, to call it, but they are people which are all around the world. Um, we may not even know their real names, and you need to take care of them and not to put too much responsibility on their on their shoulders. Okay. And I think when you want to have all these elements together, given that uh, blockchains, applications, and cryptocurrency are developing fast, we, we think that, you know, in Switzerland, the heart of the crypto valley that Switzerland did something good, which means starting early, regulating, and you get step by step. Because you yeah. cannot sail faster than the wind. 
you know, you, you, you don't know exactly how it goes. So you need to, uh, to create something to adjust, to monitor and to react. And so this is for main take of Switzerland's probably of, uh, yeah, of the expense it has and that can be useful for the future for different uh, countries. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know from conversations we had, uh, I know you're saying that that FINMA um, are, are quite helpful and, and, and supportive, um, yeah, in developing crypto um, products and so on. But uh, okay, well, well, well that, that, that's great. Thank you very much for that. So let me now turn to specific uh, regulatory initiatives. Um, so the EU's Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation, or MiCA is bound to be very influential, even beyond the EU's borders. So, Le Levan, can you describe some of the good and bad points about Mika and its likely impact on crypto becoming mainstream? Hi, Levan, are you there? Sorry, I, uh, I, I pressed the mute button. Um, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the, the key things about Mika is that it is a comprehensive framework. And I think looking at the the commission proposal that had come out in September of last year, it's clear that they left no stone unturned in their analysis of this. And it comes off the back of a lot of analysis of existing financial services legislation and um, and, and its applicability to the crypto industry. And I think the the most effective thing on this is that it applies. It, it's a regulation. It has. It applies directly to all members of uh, the EU and the EEA, uh, in fact. And it means that there is a single rulebook for crypto industries to follow and to move across this whole market. So I think, in in that sense, it is a fantastic piece of uh, initiative uh, and a, okay. a great piece of legislation for to allow um, crypto to, to kind of move cross-border as it naturally does um, and, and develop across the EU. The, I think perhaps some of the shortcomings of Mika is that, well, on one side of things, it was, it was I feel, largely prioritized by the deemonization. Um, and so Sorry, Levan, Le Le you you broke up there for the last couple of seconds. Sorry, do you, did you mind repeating that? Sure. Um, so I think one of the shortcomings of DM. Uh, what? Well, sorry, I think one of the shortcomings of Mika was uh, that a lot of the discussion has been railroaded by by DM. So uh, uh, a lot of the focus has that, been. That's the Facebook. Um, Facebook yeah. stable currency, isn't it? Yeah. The, um, uh, Facebook. Backed, um stablecoin, yes. And um, I think one, one of the difficulties there has been that the discussion has been largely focused on that um, and and kind of not taking a, a, a broader view of the whole industry. Um, and, and, that, and that's reflective of, the of how the process is developed and the discussions in both the Parliament and the Council as well. But I think one of the kind of more fundamental parts, uh, and I think from a from a kind of process and uh, procedural perspective of what Mika is, is that it's a subsidiary piece of legislation. So this is a piece of legislation that applies when all other EU financial services legislation is disapplied. 
And I think this makes it quite complicated and, 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 and costly for new market entrants because they will have to ensure that they, um, they do all their analysis to ensure that, for example, they are, they are not in some way covered by MIFID yeah. um, before they then have to do their analysis on whether they, they are uh, within, the, uh, within the remit of MECA and, and therefore what rules they have to follow. And this is quite a costly process. And I, I think that something that can be improved on this is if this process is streamlined. So uh, an example that I, uh, that, that I give is the, that of uh, the, the crowdfunding uh, legislation. So uh, arguably that um, crowdfunding can fall within the remit of existing financial services legislation. It could be deemed as a collective investment scheme, for example. Okay. But it has its own ring fence piece of legislation that crowdfunding platforms can operate within this within this um, uh, this legislation, and everything else is disapplied. And that I think allows there to be greater clarity and a streamlined process um, for the market to really really evolve and kick off. And I think that arguably the, the this this framework could benefit from that. Right. Okay. Well, some interesting points there. So, I mean, Eve, what, what do you uh, what do you think about Mika and its potential impact abroad? Uh, may, maybe even its ability to to influence Switzerland once it's uh, in force. Yeah, I mean, Levin I mean, summarized all the main points, so I don't have much to say. I think, okay. I think as well, it's, it's kind of comprehensive. It's pretty much details. But the good news is it's really unified. And say all the all the all the existing framework create some kind of legal certainty as well. It should enhance market integrity, financial stability. So we see that as positive. It's maybe just 2024 seems to be far away when it will be really applied. Yeah. And um, you know maybe it could be a, a bit dissuasive uh, by you know you know because it's happening right now. But that would be a Let's say the, the negative side, but I mean, just an add on to what Levan said. I, I fully agree with, with what he said, and I don't have anything else to add with that. Yeah. Oh, okay, fine. No, okay, we'll move, move on to, to, to the next question, which is probably more for Levan anyway. So, um, if Levan, if you could, could go first on this one. Following Brexit, um, the UK is revisiting its regulatory frameworks. Um, we've had the Khalifa review on fintech, Lord Hill's recommendations on the listings regime, etc., etc., etc. But in terms of crypto, I'm, I'm hearing some disappointments about the UK's approach so far. Um, a lot of people complained about the Financial Conduct Authority sitting on applications, um, you know, for, for, for anti-money laundering purposes. So, Levan, can you share your thoughts as to how the UK might approach this? Um, you know, is, is it, you know, is the UK likely to mirror Mika, for example, or will the UK authorities go down the road of, of a more principles-based uh, framework, as, as is often their, their instinct, actually? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the kind of important things um, on on this is, as I said um, before, that crypto is borderless. There, there, there are uh, there, it, 
there are no kind of jurisdictional boundaries as such. And I think we've got to be cognizant of that when we're building a framework. So to answer your question of whether we'll uh, mirror Mika or whether we'll um, kind of go our, uh, our own way, I think the important thing is that either there is the buy into Mika and have some sort of alignment there, or there is address some of the shortcomings that are in Mika and build global um, kind of alliances in that sense so that there is this kind of universal approach. Yeah. And to, to address the kind of first part of the question of the, the UK not necessarily um, being perceived to be doing much in this area, I think there is, there is a lot of activity that is taking place. Um, so the Khalifa Review, for example, did highlight the, the role of crypto uh, under it, in its recommendations, the role of crypto in the future of finance, um, as well as also the importance of CBDC. And we're, we're seeing that through, there was the Treasury consultation paper on stable coins, the call for evidence on DLT-based financial markets infrastructure, DeFi, security tokens, and then from the, from the FCA, the uh, discussion paper on um, financial promotions, for example. Okay. And I think, and, and, and more recently, there was the discussion paper on, from the Bank of England on the, the future of money. And the thing that I find very reassuring from this is the, how, this all tie, how, how these things are all tying together. Um, it's, there seems to be strong coordination between the, the, uh, the Bank of England, uh, the Treasury, and the Financial Conduct Authority. As, as you'll know, there is the task force as well. Yeah. Um, to, to deal with this and what's reassuring is the rhetoric that's coming out is 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 also the almost the uh, the understanding that there is going to be an interplay between stable coins and cbdc's and therefore there are there is almost a deep analysis uh, that's kind of coming out of this on what the interaction between the two will be and and also there are some very promising uh, indications that there needs to be a proportionate regulation that understands the, the kind of the the risks that stable coins have. So kind of not necessarily having this quite weighty regime that um, but but instead something that is put in place to facilitate um, uh, stable coins. So I think there is a lot of analysis that is going on behind the scenes, and I think that the UK are in um, are, are, are putting attention towards this, and I think that we're starting to, to see this come through. Right. Okay. Well, that, I must admit that that does sound like quite a positive take um, on, on you know on the train of direction that the UK is going in anyway. Um, I mean, just Eve, uh, Eve, do you, do you have any thoughts about about the UK's approach to regulate crypto assets? I mean, maybe in your discussions with people in the industry, you've maybe heard comments about it, or or if you have your own views, maybe. Well, I mean, what we actually all view inside the bank is that uh, the UK has started pretty early tackling this issue. As far as I remember, I think in the early 2015, it started with this AML check for crypto exchanges, 
Okay. It literally uh, started all the process and it works step by step. I uh, say, I would say, a la Switzerland, so to say. And almost every year you get an addition. You know, you have some kind of warning on ICO, and you have also the FCA regulatory guidance. You know, clarifying the the crypto asset handling. There was also this ban on uh, crypto asset derivatives from retail investors, and this is something that we have seen quite a lot uh, in the media. For example, there was also proposal to regulate stablecoin, and this is something which is developing. What we very much like uh, in this approach is actually two things. The first one is again this kind of step by step or ongoing development, and the second one is that. Uh, we think that UK is using a sort of a technological neutrality approach, okay. which means that you know if you have something which is on DLT on digital ledger technology but actually have the exact same feature as any other asset, then it means this is the same asset as it is on, on traditional basis. And we think that this is something which is which is very good to uh, for, for promoting uh, for promoting. Um, blockchain approach. And finally, UK Financial Monetary Authority remain quite influential, also globally. And obviously, they have some concern, which is fine. I, I understand them. But fundamentally, they seem to be supportive products. And so if we have this kind of authority, which counts uh, globally, that support the idea, I think that will definitely help other countries to join them. You know, the development into some regulatory solutions for blockchains and crypto assets. Okay, well, that's also a, a very positive take there. Um, okay, well, well, look, Eve, um, let me stay with you. Um, as you know, the situation. So, so just just shifting to a completely different continent now. As you know, the situation in the US is quite confusing, uh, particularly compared with the EU's clearer. Approach with Amica, so you know some U.S. policymakers clearly remain suspicious of all things crypto. Um, you know, you've seen some of the lawsuits there. They they are they do send quite mixed messages. Um, well, you know, while others other policymakers they clearly see an opportunity uh, for, for the U.S. economy from crypto. Um, so, Eve, do, do you think the U.S. Eventually, will craft a unique regime such as Mika, or do you think they will simply adapt their existing regulatory frameworks? And would there be any upsides or downsides to that approach, in your view? Yeah, that's a key question. I think I actually agree with you. It's confusing at best. Yeah, there's a mix between, let's say, federal and um, you know, and so the, the state-based regulatory system, so that you don't really know where you go, and it definitely adds confusion. There is no unity, so it's not unifying as uh, as Mika is doing, for example. Yeah. And I mean, it's not only an issue in the U.S., but we know that the U.S. is setting the tone for the whole world, and uh, we have all these impacts, uh, these international impacts. I think it's it's complicated for the rest of the world to know where it has to go. So we, we hope that at some point in time, there will be a unifying force behind these regulations. And I think that will be a major change. However, what we seem to observe is that this kind of a state-based regulatory matrix uh, seems to be the way the US is working. And we don't really see uh, kind of uh, the top-down uh, development. That said, there are some nice developments. The last 12 months, 
you know, in the US, it has been pretty quiet on the um, on the crypto markets. Uh, I mean, there have been a lot of projects, but I, th I think in terms of uh, regulation. However, we yeah. have seen that the Fed, for example, the OCC, this Office of the Control of the Currency, the FDIC, seems to be collaborating and preparing a sort of a joint cryptocurrency regulatory framework. So we hope that it will again kind of set the tone or, you know, give an idea of where, where we go. We have seen also that the SEC has reported there was some um, regulatory gaps and uh, it doesn't look like that. And they would like to propose something so that exchanges uh, where you can trade crypto are regulated in the very same way as, for example, the New York Stock Exchange or, or the NASDAQ. So something is coming there, and uh, okay. we like that. We, we, we hope it will, it will uh, come soon. But the problem is there is still no clarity, and uh, we need to have a clear oversight. We are in a sort of a wait-and-see situation, and this is uh, very uncomfortable. And yeah. uh, for us, it's important that the, the outcome of this process would be absolutely key to shape cryptocurrencies regulation globally. This is why we wait for the US, because the yeah. US plays a central role that it's uh, not as clear as for the UK, as for Europe, and as for, um, for Switzerland, obviously. Yeah, no, well, that, that, that's, 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 that's a very good roundup, actually, um, of what's going on there. I mean, I mean, Levan, what, what do you think about the US situation and whether they'll go, whether they'll tailor or, or come up with a bespoke regime? So I think from my perspective, um, the US is unlikely to propose something uh, on, on lines of Mika, at least in the, in the near term. Uh, and the reason why I say that, I don't think that there is enough internal or external pressure to seriously consider that at this stage. Um, and where I come from on that is if we draw a parallel to the EU and um, the uh, GDPR coming into force. Yeah. Um, and there are kind of similarities there. The GDPR in many ways deprives the US of leadership on privacy. Um, it, and it's only after that that there, there, that there was kind of serious consideration of a federal privacy law. Um, but the, the but even still now there isn't really that kind of traction and getting that we're still waiting for it and, um, and and it's still quite some way from adopting it. So I think if we were to draw that parallel, we'd see Mika come into force and there would be that kind of external pressure. Um, which then brings the internal pressure to develop something, but we're very far away from that. In the um, in the meantime, I think what we'll see is um, kind of the that that adaption of existing regulatory frameworks, um, which will in some ways be quite a piecemeal approach, um, but as as you would do from not having this kind of overarching framework. Yeah. Um, but the upside to that would be that you would get something that was done relatively quickly, um, albeit it's, the tendency is on the adoption of existing regulation is that the rules that come into force are quite re uh, are more uh, restrictive as a, uh, for example, kind of taking on a stronger approach on AML uh, as opposed to doing something that is kind of more um, kind of enabling um, that certain kind of frameworks 
that could be implemented would be doing in the crypto space. Right. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. Okay, Eve, if I can come back to you then. Um, the Basel Committee recently put out a consultation on the prudential treatment of cryptocurrencies and stablecoins by banks. Uh, now, it gives cryptocurrency exposures the highest available capital weightings and even, adv even advises potential capital add-ons for certain stablecoins, even though they might be backed by traditional assets. Uh, now, if these recommendations come into force, how will that shape the approach banks take to crypto and the type of crypto services they go on to offer to their clients and, and, and even their own sort of proprietary activities in, in crypto, maybe? Yes, we, we obviously have uh, been very interested in this, in this release. And uh, if it comes, that will be um, impactful for, for the financial industry. As you mentioned, uh, you know, this is this idea of pilot one, uh, different types of um, way to, to get liquidity. And uh, indeed, when we mentioned the idea of uh, what they call other crypto asset could be Bitcoin, Ether, but also all the DeFi tokens are, let's say, part of the worst category you can ever imagine. Yes. So it means that actually you have to have a 1,250% risk weighted uh, capital, which is extremely expensive. Yeah. And I mean, it's clearly mean that there's not strong support or confidence into this kind of uh, of of, um, of assets. Uh, I mean, for, for the other two, let's say for the, the good news, because there are still some kind of good news in this um, in this report. Okay. If you think about uh, tokenized traditional assets, so you just tokenize anything. That the pillar one solution should be roughly the same as we have with some kind of twist on the top of that, which should be slightly more expensive, but not so much. And also for stablecoin, because stablecoin are not as good as, let's say, standard electronic form of fiat money. So they will take a sort of a haircut, um, you know, according to the different uh, stabilization uh, mechanisms. But the fact is, at least this report recognize the, the sort of ineluctability of asset tokenization and, um, and, and stablecoin. This is obviously good. But again, for the rest, for other crypto assets, Bitcoin, it's a DeFi and so on. Um, it's a sort of a very kind of a one-size-fits-all, harshest possible capital charge. And um, it's, uh, it has broad implication indeed for, um, yeah, for, um, for, for the banking system because it's it's very costly to offer these kind of solutions or you know all kind of uh, cryptocurrencies and token because it costs a lot in terms of uh, balance sheet. I mean, so okay, so you know, a bank considering moving into this space, um, Eve, do do they? Um, I mean, is that going to sort of when it comes to okay, I, I guess certain stable coins they'll be able to. Uh, to participate in those fully, but maybe cryptocurrencies, maybe it will just what providing custodian services, a, a, a trading platform for customers, I all things where the bank is kind of standing aside. Is is that what you think will happen as a, yeah. if this goes into force? I I mean, so we see there are really big names, and I don't want to mention that, but we saw all yes, the big, they've all been know, in the press. In, exactly, they are all in the press. Big investment banking of the world, they are entering into this business. Realizing that you see, they see that as a sort of 
lucrative business, they want to enter into it. But I mean, they don't want to do it if this would be done tomorrow. So they also believe that uh, this technology will remain and the cryptocurrency which are associated to this technology are part of, let's say, a new uh, asset class. But I think that the way this will be, uh, you know, let's say, uh, accounted within the bank should be different. So most of the solution will be off balance sheets. Okay. In order for banks to survive, because if you, you know, if you have to, because at the end of the day, the clients need to pay uh, these uh, fees, you know, because they get this cost. That is something that would prevent anyone for using all the regulatory environments, and that would definitely incentivize non-regulatory exchanges, which doesn't mean everything is illicit, right? I don't say that. But yeah. really, I think it really, in a way, I'm, I'm wondering whether this is not counterproductive to do to do something else. I understand there is a high volatility, and I think we, we have seen that recently, just with the price of Bitcoin. Yeah. And it makes sense that uh, it's more volatile than government bonds, So and the liquidity is not the same. But I think we have to be careful with that. I, I get that the solution for the time being is to find off balance situation for example, creating SPV or you know, ways to, yeah, to make your, your balance sheet, the bank balance sheet, pretty light and not too costly to manage. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's totally understandable. Uh, um, okay, Levan, what, what do you make of the Basel recommendations? And, and secondly, how do you think banks will end up responding in terms of the crypto services and, and, and their sort of involvement in the crypto space? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree with everything that Eve has said there. So I, I mean, most of what I, I would say to that would echo what, what he said. Um, I think, you know, first of all, I think kind of putting out the positives on this is that well, at least at, at least there is um, there is an approach on this. There is something progressive on this as opposed to a, to a um, banning from holding um, crypto assets, which uh, which is a positive. Um, and then, as you say, the, the, the kind of two tranches that we look at here, the first, which allows, uh, which kind of treats almost um, all, uh, the kind of tokenized uh, assets in the same way as the, the, the traditional assets with, as, as mentioned already, with a slight kind of add-on. Um, but it's the second tranche that is the one that certainly from global digital finance perspective is is, is Quite concerning, in the such a high risk weighting being uh, being applied here, and I think what we need to take into consideration also is that this is a consultation process, and I think there will certainly be a lot of response, certainly from GDF, and I'm sure a number of uh, of different. Uh, I'm sure there will be yes. <laughs> um, to, to, to kind of temper uh, some of this this approach and and kind of make sure that it is more a more proportionate approach, because as you've said. The what the impact of this? Uh, I mean, the, the kind of the thinking behind this is also the, these kind of protectionist measures and consumer protection. But but ultimately, the people who will be paying for measures such as this would be would be the clients. It would just be passed on uh, in many ways. So um, it, to what extent is it counterproductive? So I think that the it will be. Uh, we'll see how this process, consultation process goes, and as I say, we'll, we'll be engaging with that to see, um, to to ensure that a more proportionate approach is taken. 
I mean, uh, just just unpack that slightly more before we move on. Um, I mean, Eve mentioned about um, you know banks taking a sort of balance sheet light approach, maybe setting up SPVs. That kind of sounds a bit like shadow banking. So, you know, if this comes to force, Levan, do do you do you think you know we could see a sort of shadow banking sector evolving? You know. Uh, around around it, which which you know might not be quite what the regulators want. Well, well perhaps I think it, it's um, it is very much dependent on uh, yeah, where 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 the industry moves on this. I mean, we're actually seeing something quite similar being set up in the US at the moment with the custody of digital assets. The um, the intention on that is for a separation of. The, um, the custody of traditional assets and that's digital uh, digital securities and so those who currently hold traditional um, traditional securities will have to set up an SBV to hold the uh, to hold the digital securities and I think the thinking behind that and certainly that approach from the SEC at the time was very similar to the approach that we saw when there was the kind of moving on to from kind of traditional commerce to e-commerce. There was this uh, the 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 not wanting to um, to cr cross contaminate the two uh, to the two exposures, and therefore there was the separation of the two uh, the e-commerce e and the traditional commerce businesses. And once there was uh, once the things had settled down, and there was a greater understanding and more comfort around the subject, the two were allowed to combine. And I think also, as, as Eve says there, if the two were to, to separate um, and kind of there was the kind of creation of an, an SPV to hold this, I do think that it would be more of a short term thing okay. but, uh, until there is the, the kind of comfort around the subject. Right. OK, that's lovely. Justin? Yes, go, go ahead, Eve. Yeah, so, sorry. Yes, I think it's a, it's a good point. It, 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 the way I... I present it sounds a bit like shadow banking, but this is not what I wanted. I, I, I didn't I, mean I, it. I didn't mean it like that, but uh, it, it just—it's just a thought that crossed my mind. That's all. Oh yeah, I wanted to shed light and not to cast shadow on uh, sure. this uh, uh, banking system. And I think that I need to precise with my soul. I think there are two different ways, and and Lavan actually kind of mentioned it. I mean, for issuing, let's say, um, ETP or these kind of uh, financial products. An SPV is definitely a good way because the assets are outside the bank. They belong to the, to the let's say they are fully backed. So you, the asset, the, the financial product you offer is fully backed. And uh, I mean, everyone, everyone's very happy with that. There is another way because you typically, if you, you, you have a crypto bank, like the bank where I'm working, you have clients coming with their, um, with their own crypto assets. Then what we would propose is to have a custody solution by cold storage. And this is back on the blockchain. Uh, like, for example, if you own a share, you know, if you have a deposit account and you have share, the share—I mean, the share you have—you own them. They are not on the balance sheet of your of the bank. You know, they go bankrupt. They, it belongs to you. And in that case, also, you make your balance sheet a bit lighter. There are definitely two ways. The first one is SPV or financial products. The second one is to use cold storage for, uh, let's say, I would say. Physical assets, even though it's quite clear that uh, uh, um, cryptocurrency are, are old but not physical. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, well no, fair enough. And, 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 you know, thanks for the clarification. Actually, Eve, if I could stay with you. Um, so um, moving to the last, uh, the last question now, which is, which, you know, you've got the highly influential financial action task force, which is consulting on guidance on a risk-based approach, risk approach towards the treatment of crypto assets for anti-money laundering purposes. Um, you've got other key global standard setters, such as the Basel Committee, we we're just talking about that, and you've got the Financial Stability Board. They're all sort of looking at crypto as well. So, so Eve, how, how do you think those, those bodies those global standard setters will shape the mainstream adoption of crypto across the world. Well, I think their their impact will be will be huge, uh, definitely. Yeah. But they have to be uh, careful the way they do it. And I think Lavan mentioned it, um, you know, some some questions ago, saying that you know the, the, the problem is regulation. This is linked to we are used with central regulation, so you need to have someone to regulate or to blame. And uh, when this is decentralized, you have a decentralized financial protocol, a decentralized application or, or smart uh, contract. You don't have anyone. You don't even know who is behind. Yeah, that's a big problem. Is, uh, that's a big problem. And then, uh, this is all the, the problem about how to update guidance. It's a risk-based approach to virtual asset and virtual asset service provider, this sort of uh, VASP. And uh, what we have seen with this um, you know, financial action task force uh, consulting that, you know, you cannot apply the current system to peer-to-peer -peer transactions because it doesn't work. There's someone missing in, the, in, in, in between. So you need to find a way. And because you cannot potentially charge a smart contract, you need to have to look who is behind it. And yeah. it that the risk is that the owners of the DApps so or the controller, the operators, so all the developers of the DeFi applications are actually the VASPs and are at the risk of uh, being, um, you know, sued in case there is some kind of uh, illicit transactions. And this is definitely not good because it will prevent these people from doing that, in particular because you don't, they do not provide or there is no way all the time being to uh, check correctly, uh, you know, who is bringing money. Yeah. So you don't have proper KYC, AML, and so on. And, and I think that's, this is what I said at the beginning, I think that it, it could well be the case at the, at the very beginning, I mean, from now on in the, in the next few years, until we get a proper digital identity, then banks or any regulated financial institution uh, providing proper KYC, AML, and, and uh, CFT uh, checks to whitelist participants. And then, uh, in a way, that this traditional financial facilities open the door to the decentralized finance, creating, let's say, white pool, or I don't know how to call that, when you know that all people uh, using the DeFi applications, um, you know, people that are allowed to do it. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether we should not, we, this is not something where, where we could go. But the risk is indeed the way as it is, is to prevent more innovations. Yeah. The, the guys which are behind codings are definitely not bankers or lawyers and so on. 
they, it's, it's probably too much of a risk for them. So I think that's a, that's a major concern. Maybe we can find a way with banks. And, and the, the most elegant situation, most elegant solution, sorry, would be Navio digital identity, which I hope will come soon. And uh, this is, um, yeah, this is something to see in the future. Yeah, uh, well, th th those are all very, very good points, actually, Eve. Okay, well, Levan, um, you know, what is your take on how the global standard setters might shape the use of crypto by mainstream investors and, and financial services going forward? Well, I think they play a vital role here. So, the as, as I'd mentioned before, I think the thing that we need to consider in all of this is that crypto is is borderless and therefore having these jurisdictional measures that are all, uh, that are different is counterproductive in, in the, the overall aims of building these frameworks and protections so i think it's they, they play a, a very important role in setting these standards that will be adopted by uh, supranational organizations and and member states and i think if we if we look towards the financial action task force and and, and what they've been doing in uh, AML on this matter, I think that that is, is that is a clear indication of of the role they play and the influence that they have. So it's yeah. manifested itself in five AMLD and the incoming AMLR in Europe, for example, which, and creating these standards and 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 I think that. That is uh, a very, they play a very important role um, in, in, in shaping where we go in this industry. And on that note, I'd like to thank Levan and Eve for taking part in Global Risk Regulators' regulatory podcast series. And if you'd like to listen to more regulatory podcasts, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. And you can also subscribe to our podcasts via ACAR, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy this, please do share it. And finally, I'd like to wish everyone listening to stay safe and well. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.